Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Some borders are patrolled by agents or separated by oceans, while others are less well-marked. When the violence around the Haddad family in Damascus escalated, Tarek crossed the border of Syria into Lebanon with his family as refugees. Then Tarek left his family to immigrate to Canada in 2015. Today, Tarek is the founder of a thriving business, Peace by Chocolate, living in Nova Scotia with his family who soon followed him here. Tarek reflects with me on being in the business of happiness, the meaning of home, and successfully navigating crises. Next, I'm joined by Canadian award-winning travel writer, Marcello Di Cintio. Have you ever thought about how a taxi is a border of sorts? Marcello has, profoundly. He is the author of Driven, The Secret Lives of Taxi Drivers. Taxi drivers are definitely entrepreneurs, like Trek. But after speaking with Marcello, I think few of them would suggest they are in the business of happiness. Whether it's the tale of Ikwe or the bully of Baghdad, Marcello reveals to us their complex and intriguing stories that we might not otherwise have been told, which often involve fleeing dangerous circumstances, if only to end up taking a seat behind the wheel at risk's edge. Buckle your seatbelts and get ready for a risky ride. Thank you for joining me, Trek, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to that conversation. So let's get right into it. You decided to come to Canada in the face of so many risks and so many unknowns. What made you decide that the risks of staying where you were uh, were worse than the risks of coming to Canada? Uh, I, I go back to one of the sayings of my grandfather. He used to say that immigration is tougher than death. And at that time, it was in 2005. Syria was a peaceful country. Our family had a successful life. You know, I was getting into medicine. My entire family were really um, getting their, their life path all figured out. So when the war started in Syria in 2011, we just figured out that what matters at the end of the day is keeping the family safe and protect them and making sure the kids in the family have a brighter future. So in 2013, it was the year when our family decided to leave Syria in the first place. And it was not, our, it was not an easy decision. It was really one of the toughest decisions that our family had to take. And we became called refugees in Lebanon. Now, now when you are called a refugee, that means you, you lost your sense of belonging, you lost your identity, and it was something we did not want to be. No one is born to become a refugee. No one is born to become an immigrant. So when we, when we were, you know, as refugees, we decided that it is our chance right now to flip our life to a better future than what we were living as, as you know, refugees with honestly not even an identity. We cannot go back to Syria. We cannot stay in Lebanon. It was like feeling stuck. 
Um, you know, many Canadians right now during the pandemic would, would say that the only feeling they had in 2020 that they were they were stuck. There was no opportunity for them to move. There was no opportunity for them to travel. There was no opportunity for them to do anything. Imagine being like this for, for years of your life, being as refugees. So we certainly wanted to uh, get the family out of, um, of Lebanon. Um, we applied to go to any country that can open the doors for us. We, I, my application was to France, was to New Zealand, was to Australia. I applied to go to the US, that's before, uh, before President Trump was a president. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that our family gets out of, of Lebanon. And at that time, there, Canada was honestly the, uh, the only opportunity for me to, uh, to travel here. So if I was to compare our life there in Lebanon, was even tougher than being in a war. Being as a refugee means that you are counting down to death. You are losing years of your life, uh, you know, with without having your your uh, family members in in schools. With my father had to sign a commitment that he's not going to work in Lebanon. Uh, he could not start a business. I could not um, go back to practice. But at the same time, I was volunteering with many organizations because. When you are a refugee, you have two options. You can play the role of a victim or you can play the role of a victor. I decided to take the second. I decided to play the role of a victor even though we lost everything in the war, but we had our intellectual property, our talents and our skills, and we wanted to help. So by the end of 2014, uh, the opportunity to come to Canada is just, you know, was on the horizon after, a cab driver in Beirut, and on Christmas time in 2014, he he was waiting for me. I I was in the car with him for 30 minutes. He dropped me off at my my parents' place, and he told me all about Canada. He told me there's a scholarship at the Canadian Embassy at that time for a program called WUSC, the World University Services of Canada. And I had no idea that my life, my life would change forever because of a cab driver, because of that <laughs> cab ride that I took in, in Beirut around Christmas time in 2014. So the, the embassy of, uh, of Canada in Lebanon invited me for the interview for the scholarship. I was not eligible for the scholarship. I did not qualify. But then the embassy invited me and my family to come to Canada in 2015. And it took a long time. The process took a long time uh, between March 2015 until, you know, the commitment with the new government in 2015 to bring 25,000 Syrians to Canada. So I was among the first planes, obviously. I had just left Beirut in early December, arrived in Toronto, and then how this is how my life started. If I was to compare coming to Canada with, you know, being uh, uh, at risk as a refugee, you know, immigration has its own challenges. But the moment that I was on the plane from Beirut to Toronto on December 18th, 2015, I knew that I was going somewhere to keep me at peace, to keep me safe, and to keep my family as well um, at, you know, that they're living, they are continuing to have their bright future ahead of them. This is this is the ultimate goal for each, each of the families. And to live in peace and to have a brighter future and to have kids in schools and to rebuild what was lost in the war. And our story is just among greedy, so many Canadian success stories. So we are so proud to be in this country of human rights, of freedom. You know, Canada means a lot to us right now. It's it's the country uh, that accepts 
immigrants and people from around the world, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our background, we are welcome wherever we come from and whoever we are. And that's why we are so proud to be here. Well, it's such an incredible story. And, you know, I think we, I think all of us feel the the joy uh, that, that, that is imparted in the way you tell your story. I, I want to back up a little bit because people might not appreciate that, that when your family first made the decision to leave Syria to go to Lebanon, you weren't even thinking that it would be permanent. You, you thought you might end up being able to go back to Damascus. That's correct. That's that's so true. You know, the moment when we left Syria, it was like a, a, a temporary thing it would be like a few months in 2013. The war would end in Syria and then we would go back. But there was no way back. You know, our our entire uh, ship's back were burned, as they say. You know, we did not have the opportunity to get back to Damascus. Uh, at that time, to be honest, everything was, was destroyed in the war. What would we get back to? Our house that was stolen then was burned then was destroyed and was bombed by by an airstrike and by tanks on the street or you know get back to many of my friends uh, who were who went uh, missing who were arrested who went killed in prisons in Damascus or really go back to the factory the second largest in the region that was bombed by the most powerful explosion in the Syrian war in 2012, um, you know, all the memories that we had back home in Syria were, were really painful. You know, home for us is not the place that we are only born in. Home for us and for our family is a place that offers us life and peace. And we certainly lost that sense of life. And, and, and even being in, in Syria at that time was a huge risk uh, for us. Uh, at the same time, people don't know the, the victims in the war at that time and continue to be are civilians, those who did not want to become part of that war, those who just wanted to have um, peace and safety in their lives, and those certainly have paid that the highest price. Uh, those who, are, who, who have lost their future, their, their presence, and no one of them was born to become a refugee. As I mentioned, when you are born, no one comes to you and asks you, what do you want to be in the future? No one says, I want to be an immigrant. No one says, I want to be a refugee. This is something that you are forced to live. This not, it's not a decision. It's not a life goal. It's not passion. It's something that we are forced to live. So it is certainly a great honor for our family to, to, to have been able to um, come to Canada and reestablish our, ourselves and certainly not only be able to uh, reestablish our business, also help other refugees and other immigrants as well reestablish theirs. So at the same time, when I think about Damascus after leaving in 2013, just brings so many um, sweet memories. And that's the hardest part, right, in leaving your homeland. It's that sense of, of disconnecting. And when you disconnect from, from the country that you were born in, you have your connections, your relationships, your uh, connections with the family. I, have, I had a big family in Damascus. There were around 60 of us living in one building in Damascus before the war, six zero. So we we're having the supper together every Saturday. Our, our building was really uh, 10 floors in Damascus, the one we were living in. And every Saturday, my grandmother used to invite us to have uh, supper with her. 
uh, imagine having a large giant table in your grandmother's house with 60 chairs on it and you cannot miss a dinner with your family or you'll be kicked out of the building. <laughs> so she, has, she has no tolerance for missing dinners with her. It was really lovely to have that sense of uh, social cohesion and family safety at that time and really telling stories and hearing a lot about, uh, about the country and the history and the tradition. Because Damascus is a very, Damascus is a very old place. It's, it's an ancient city. It goes back thousands of years in, in history. And it was certainly an interconnection between all cultures in the Middle East at that time, and even between Europe and Africa and you know, all the ancient continents, uh, the three ancient continents. So it was certainly a great place to be born in, you know, connecting the old world with the modern one. And our our building was on the on the middle between that uh, uh, modern area and the ancient one, so we knew about our history. My grandmother used to say, "You have to know where you came from to know where you are going." So when we were in Damascus, we uh, we always connected the dots between our history and our path forward, and uh, it was uh, absolutely a great place to be. And I remember many Canadian tourists who were going back to Syria. Uh, let me tell you a short story about Damascus, by the way, as we are talking about it. So in, 2000, in 2008, um, this is how I really got to know about Canada, by the way. In 2008, um, I finished one of my uh, uh, trainings that I, I had in Damascus, and I was on that public, public bus, and there was, uh, you know, a, a Canadian man who came and, and, you know, was on the bus. He came and sat beside me. Um, the, the guy at that time, he lost his paper, he lost his passport. Um, he was, I think, a photographer. So I knew he lost all his papers. I knew he did not really have any money. I took him with me to our house in Damascus. And he, had, he spent one full month with us at the house. Uh, and we hosted him. He really loved it. He loved the experience. He loved knowing about the country. He loved that, you know, the sense of hospitality. And uh, after one full month, me and my friends, we found his papers at one of the public gardens in Damascus. We gave it to him. Uh, the guy is from British Columbia. And uh, he told us all about Canada at that time. But having no idea, in 2008, we will host a Canadian man in our house. And then in 2016, Canadians will host us in their houses and in their country. You know, the law of reciprocity, this is exactly what happens. So <laughs> every time I tell the story about, you know, I think about Canada before coming here, the guy just comes to my mind because he really represents all the, 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 the values that this country lives by every day. Now, you were studying to be a doctor uh, just before you were forced to flee Syria. Um, and you still held on to that ambition when you were in Lebanon, you assisted uh, treating other, your fellow refugees. Uh, you came to Canada thinking you would still be a doctor, but now you're an entrepreneur. What have all of your experiences, um, how have that fed into your, your ideas about entrepreneurship and how to be successful at it? Um, certainly, I was very passionate about medicine. You know, my family had that passion about making chocolate and making happiness through chocolate. And I was very passionate about um, in medicine because I, I was correlating medicine to chocolate because medicine seeks to diminish pain. 
and chocolate seeks to raise happiness. So there's always that mutual uh, common point that I talk about. When, when I was in Lebanon, and the reason why I applied to come to Canada in the first place was to continue my medical studies. So the, the scholarship did not work out, you know, and then the invitation came on, uh, on, on the horizon for our family, and then we were so lucky to be accepted. So I landed in Canada on December 18th. I had big plans, you know, to go back to medicine for sure. That was, that was one of the first things I wanted to do. But then I landed in Nova Scotia the day after on December 19th and coming from Halifax with this amazing group of Canadians who drove me from the airport to the town of Antigonish. They were the sponsors of our family and their PVOR. They didn't know us. They, they had no idea who we were. Uh, they had no idea what did we do in Syria. The only thing they knew was the size of our family and our last names and our first names. That's it. So having the opportunity to meet these guys at that time, I realized that I have a lot to give back. You know, this amazing uh, group of people, like millions of other Canadians, they have done everything possible to make sure that refugees arrive here and they are safe and they have a bright future ahead of them. So the moment that I met these beautiful hearted Canadians at that time, I'm like, I really want to give back to this amazing community and to this amazing country. And they started, you know, they were at that time um, helping us with integration. They were uh, broken into committees for employment, for education, uh, for social activities, you know, for financial management, everything for housing, for clothing. And I'm like, how can I get back and give back to these amazing um, friends, you know, new family that I call them. So um, I realized that, you know, going back to medicine was a really long path. I applied to go to many um, universities in the country for sure. That was during January in 2016, uh, during my first weeks in the country. <laughs> and the response was just so frustrating. If you are an immigrant physician, or if you are, were studying to become a physician outside, many universities in the country, if not all of them, ask you to go back to do undergraduate degree. Some of them ask me to do high school again. <sighs> and I'm like, this is a waste of life. You know, I'm not gonna sit down and complain and say that I can't do anything about it. No, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna switch uh, for, for a while because my understanding at that time, it, it was never too late to become a physician but it might be too late to give back to Canada. So I started at that time talking to my family within their, the, the next business day actually that, that my family uh, arrived in, in the country. The next day they woke up and were like, okay, what are we gonna do? We are gonna restart our, our business. So they were really passionate about it. And at that time, you know, I heard from my friend in Toronto, uh, he was like joking with me and he told me, do you know if you are in Toronto and you had a heart attack, it's safer to be in a cab, in a taxi, rather than being in an emergency room at the hospital? I'm like, why? Why would you have a heart attack and you are in a taxi in Toronto? And it was like, because 70% of cab drivers in Toronto are immigrant physicians. So those, those physicians, they could not get back to practice. You know, they, they had all of these challenges on the roadblocks ahead of them. And, and certainly, I, I believe there's a really a long way for us to go in the country to uh, recognize and acknowledge these uh, qualifications and credentials for many 
doctors and pharmacists and dentists and lawyers and engineers who come to Canada ready to join the workforce, but there are many roadblocks ahead of them. At that time, my main focus was to restart the business for the family. I, I knew how passionate they were about it. And I knew that as immigrants and refugees, we might have lost everything in the war, but we did not lose our skills and our talents. We did not lose the knowledge about how to make chocolate, right? We did not lose the, lose the knowledge about how can we distribute our products. We did not lose any, anything, honestly. Uh, after a while, we had sat down and said, in life, you have two options. You can either sit down and complain and say that you can't do anything, or you can dig down and find solutions. So we started finding solutions, you know. Uh, the community has been a great help for us. And I'm sure uh, uh, you, you, you know better than me about Nova Scotia. It's, it's a great place to be, and the community here is just phenomenal. Really, people there are ready to help. You know, we sent emails about some getting machineries and getting the, uh, the business registered and getting a website up and running. And we had really many community leaders and community members just joining us to rebuild the business once again. Uh, in entrepreneurship in Canada, there were uh, not too many challenges, as I mentioned. I take uh, every challenge as an opportunity to, to grow the business, as an opportunity to grow as an individual. Um, I, had, I, I had a lot of doors open for me, honestly, since I came to this country. Many uh, blessings that I have uh, so been so fortunate to live in. Um, but at the end of the day, I knew my family wanted to restart the business. So I took the lead in the beginning. Um, we got the family together in the home kitchen and we're like, yeah, let's just get to it. So we started playing with chocolate recipes again in the home kitchen in Antigonish at that time. We were spending hours and hours staying up until like 3 a.m. trying new recipes and giving away chocolates to our neighbors and our community and getting feedback. And it was really heartwarming just to know the joy we are putting on the faces. Many people in Antigonish, many people in Antigonish have been there for us and we wanted to be there for them. And one incident that changed the way um, I, I actually started looking at entrepreneurship as an opportunity to offer jobs. I was sitting in one of the coffee shops and um, you know, it was during my first weeks in Canada. And then someone was like, welcome to Canada, but um, I think at that time, one of the towns in Nova Scotia uh, had massive loss in, in jobs. And th there was really frustration about how Canada is bringing in many refugees while there's, you know, some, and it, that the rates of unemployment were, were rising in rural communities. That's what they were saying. That's what they were afraid of. And then I, he, he came to me and he said, welcome to Canada, but why did you come here to take our jobs? We don't have enough for ourselves. And I was really shocked, to be honest. I, mm. I went back to him and he was, he was really a, a kind man, but I understand the insecurity, right, at that time for people who are afraid for their jobs. And I wanted to calm him and I told him, we did not come to Canada to take jobs. We came to Canada to create them. And the guy, he kept in touch with us, uh, and he was actually one of our first employees that we hired later on in, in 2016. So, That's so I great. realized That's that, yeah, I, I realized that by being in, in the business community in, in Canada and entrepreneurship, it's a great platform 
for immigrants to express their messages and their, their visions and their missions? And why do they want to make Canada a greater place to be in and leave, leave the planet a better, uh, a better place for our kids in the future as well? That's really how my entrepreneurship journey started, is just within a few pieces of chocolate at a, a, a potluck in Antigonish at that time. And uh, entrepreneurship for me, certainly as Reed Hoffman once said, he was like, entrepreneurship is jumping off the cliffs and building a plane on the way down. So we jumped off these cliffs in 2016, having no idea where what can happen. We built that plane on the way down and now we are flying. That's so great. Um, I want to pick up something that 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 you that you said in your previous answer, and something I know your it's a real mantra for your father, which is chocolate must be made with happiness, or it will suffer. So how do you commit to happiness, and then how do you scale happiness as the business grows and you have more employees? How do you scale that happiness to ensure the chocolate does not suffer? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, it, it all goes back to um, the origin of this story goes back to how my, my parents met in Damascus. That was 1987, uh, during the first chocolate shop that my father opened at that time. And my mother stopped by my, my father's shop. She didn't know him at that time. Um, she had, uh, you know, a few hours before her flight to go see her family. And my mother went to the shop, said, hi, can I get two boxes of chocolate? And my father, uh, he had, you know, 10 boxes of chocolate stacked in the back shop uh, of really the best chocolate you can ever imagine. You know, dark chocolate, white chocolate, milk chocolate with seeds and almonds and roasted hazelnut and pistachios and dried fruits and really amazing fillings and something very spectacular with the designs and decorations on top. So my father made these few boxes and put them in the back for special guests. And he didn't know my mom at that time, but she told him she's going to see her her family. So he went back, he grabbed two boxes of chocolate, gave them to her for free and asked her, Shanaz, go see your family. And when you come back, please drop by here and tell me all about it. My, my mother, actually, she was really surprised. She got two boxes of chocolate for free. So she <laughs> took the boxes. She traveled to see her family. And then when she arrived there, she opened the two boxes. And my father inserted notes. And then that said, my name is Isam. I don't make chocolate. I make happiness. So uh, my mother was really s- struck by it. Like, you know, this is so lovely. Imagine buying these, uh, not really buying, getting these two free boxes of chocolate and then enjoying them with your family. And my mother keeps telling us that it was the best two chocolate boxes she has ever tasted, ever. So she came back to my dad and, uh, you know, she bought the remaining eight boxes on the back shelf. My dad was a genius entrepreneur, you know, he gave her two boxes for free. She came back for the eight and paid for them. So, <laughs> so it was really, really incredible. The way they tell their story until now, it just makes my heart dance. Uh, it's really amazing. So the happiness that, that started with my dad really wanted to build that connection. And that's the reason why, how my mother actually and my dad fell in love and then they got married a few months later. Uh, it just continues with, with every day. So, you know, the, the happiness is one thing. Since we came to Canada, we realized happiness is a, a, a connection between all of us human beings. 
it's something that we aspire to. It's something that everyone is seeking. You know, the reason maybe why you are doing this podcast is because you are seeking happiness and making listeners happy and just spreading knowledge. Maybe you, you get satisfied and that satisfaction leads to your happiness. Everyone does something and do their own work for, for their own happiness. And that's why my family does what it does for, for the sake of happiness. And when we arrived in Canada, we realized our message needs to be to Canadians about talking to them in a language that they will understand. You know, many immigrants come to new countries and they still get bubbled into their communities. For example, let's say we come from Syria, we come from Damascus. Many people are like, yeah, I, I am in Toronto. Let me just find my Syrian community. And they just forget about the bigger picture. They just forget about the, the, the bigger community that is there ready to listen to them and see their products and, and get their messages here. So when we came to Antigonish, it was really apparent to us in the first potluck we went to that the community is, is there for us and they are really willing to support because they believe as newcomers, we have brought something unique and something special. So that's why they got reconnected to our story in the beginning. Then they tried the chocolate and everyone was, was smiling. Everyone was happy. And, you know, that's how we, we knew we are on the right path. We knew that chocolate is a universal language. So happiness for us continued uh, to be our compass along with peace. Um, you know, you cannot build happiness without securing peace. And that's why we tied these two major values in our uh, business together, which is certainly more than a business, it's a cause into our, our core values. So, you know, happiness needs many uh, elements to it. Happiness needs passion. Happiness needs enthusiasm. Happiness needs advocacy. Happiness needs contribution. And happiness needs excellence. Without these five things, you cannot build happiness. And when we were putting together this amazing vision for our story and our brand in the country, we realized that these five pillars of happiness, they form the word peace, right? We talk right. about passion, enthusiasm, advocacy, contribution, excellence. These five, five, you know, the first five letters of these word, they form the word peace. And that's how actually the, the, the brand came about. It's, it just was a perfect match between our mission and at the same time, believing that peace is the noblest value on earth that everyone should fight for. And chocolate is, is a product of happiness. So we connected peace with happiness through chocolate, and we continue to do that every day. And I hope that everyone who tasted the chocolate or listened to the story or read about our story or got our book, they got to, to have the same feeling for us because everything is, is certainly made with, uh, with full love here in our facility in Antigonish throughout all of our team members. They believe in what we believe, and that's really the core of our uh, values. Before I let you go, you opened a flagship store in Halifax during the pandemic. How has the pandemic been for you and your family? Uh, well, the pandemic for us compared to the, to the war has been uh, a piece of cake, honestly. You know, when, when, I, when I started comparing in, in March 2020, the, the feeling of staying at home when the orders and emergency alerts started going out, you know, you stay home, stay safe. I was comparing what does it mean to be 
in a pandemic in Canada versus being in a war in Syria. And in the war, we have no option, you know? If you stay home, you will die. In a, in a war, uh, we, were, we were forced to leave our homes and we were forced to leave everything behind after the war that tore my immediate family apart. In 2020, during the pandemic, we were asked to stay in our homes and we were asked to stay safe. And I said, I will take the second, I will take the, the pandemic, full stop, honestly, because I knew what, what does it mean to be in, in, a, in a pandemic means that you're just staying home and, and uh, uh, waiting for you know, the crisis to end. Um, don't, don't get me wrong, the pandemic has been really painful. It, it caused the death of thousands of Canadians and we mourn them every day and we remember them every day. Uh, but certainly as human beings, we believe that there is resiliency in each of us. Resiliency in the face of adversity, resiliency in the face of struggles and challenges for, for every day. The pandemic will not be the last challenge that we're gonna face. There is massive threat in, in, in the face of humanity. You know, climate change, when you think about it, it's a disaster. So we believe that there are challenges coming ahead our way. And we have all to have that mindset of adapting and resiliency and fighting ahead for, for the values we believe in, you know? And that's why we started uh, fighting for peace because we believe that the challenges coming ahead for our plan are much greater than any war, any disaster, any catastrophe, any pandemic. So for, for us as a family and the business during the pandemic, we realized that what did not kill us certainly made us stronger after the war. And getting into that mindset in during the uh, the pandemic has uh, certainly helped our family to to go through it. The pandemic has caused uh, the closure of our factory for over three months last year. Uh, it was certainly not uh, not an easy decision to to make, but we wanted to keep our staff safe. We wanted to keep them uh, aligned with the brand. You know, you cannot spread peace while while you are putting your staff at risk. So we had to shut down for a few months until we had systems in place. Uh, we had to delay a lot of our plans. Uh, we had um, really major export planning for the company in 2020 to the United States and all across the world that were put on hold. Uh, the idea behind developing the Halifax flagship store, uh, we started that earlier last year. It was a few days after my citizenship ceremony, I got my citizenship on January 15th in 2020. So just really two months before the pandemic. I'm so glad for it. So the idea started Brightband. We wanted to have a place in Canada that carries 60 of our products, all of them, and add the new products. And there's no place. Right now, we distribute to over a thousand stores across the country. We sell online. We sell to many other uh, chains. But uh, we wanted to have a place where it carries all of our brands, you know, all of our missions, all of our uh, social impact throughout the Peace on Earth Society, donations to uh, Canadian Mental Health Association, to indigenous communities, to homeless youth across the country, to refugees throughout our partnership with Refugee Hub. So there is a lot to talk about. So we wanted to have that place as soon as possible. And our brand... We're so lucky to be in Nova Scotia because people really, you know, have been following our success stories since the beginning. So we felt we had a responsibility during the, the pandemic. And chocolate always helps during comfort and troubling times, even during troubling times better because it's a sweet product. 
So we started building that store in 2020. Uh, it was really a, a great uh, uh, project that we started working on with many organizations in the province. We are in downtown Halifax. For those who don't know Halifax, we are right on the waterfront at the Queensmark, the most modern place east of Montreal. So being there is just really an amazing uh, opportunity to tell our story at the heart of Nova Scotia. We started developing the architecture of the store uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, and we wanted to tell our story, wanted to tell our heritage. And that's the beauty of Canada, right? Because when you arrive here, no one asks you to take off anything of your culture, of your heritage, of your tradition. You are welcome to bring those with you and to keep those with you, and you're encouraged to teach your kids about where you came from, as I mentioned, because we know where we came from and we wanted to know where we are going. So yeah, honestly, uh, the, the pandemic has been an opportunity for us to, to grow. Um, I know feeling stuck can be a setback for so many, but for us feeling stuck was an opportunity to grow and we use that opportunity uh, to share our gratitude and open our store as a reason for celebration during the time of, of sadness and troubling time. And uh, that, you know, I, I always hear about the pandemic that it certainly had many negative impacts on the uh, uh, economies, on, on families. People were, were really challenged to find new ways to connect and communicate. So we use that opportunity to bring another reason for happiness at the heart of the capital of Nova Scotia, which is Halifax. Tarek, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your happiness with Canada. Proud to be a citizen with you. Thank you so much for having me. Really honored to be on this podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining me, Marcello, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you so much. Thank you. So tell me, what drives taxi drivers? <laughs> wow. Uh, um, I think what, what, what drives taxi drivers is, is what drives all of us. I think it's the, it's the, it's the need to, to try to live a complete life and to, and to, and to face the challenges of, uh, of, of the places where we live. Um, in that respect, uh, the, the taxi drivers are the, are the, same, are the, are the same as all of us. They're, 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 they're Canadians like the rest of us. Um, uh, what I sought to find out in this book, though, is is what were they before they were cab drivers, and, and, to, and kind of to find the, the the backstories of these of these fascinating men and women who we share such intimate space with, but never get to know. Like, I, I, it's just if you think about the the relationship between passenger and cab, it's really unique, right? Because you don't, I can't think of another another type of place where two strangers. Are such in, in physical proximity to each other and yet exchange so little and uh, uh as a travel writer who's you know whose regular job is to go around the world and, and find people with interesting stories it seems so strange that here 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 i was so close to stories and uh and kind of never crossed the border uh, uh kind of between the front and back seats and so that was the kind of the point of the of, of this whole project what struck me, and all the stories are are wonderfully told and and are deeply interesting, was that there was this risk thread that 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 ran through it. That many of the taxi drivers who you interviewed uh, wanted to be 
in control of the risk. It's not that they were running away from mm-hmm. it, but 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 they wanted that degree of autonomy. That's really what an interesting observation. That's abs- I never haven't thought about it, but that's absolutely right. Um, uh, here 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 are these these men and women, and mostly mostly men, uh, um, who are have a job that they tip they, they most of them don't like so much. Um, but what they do enjoy about it is the autonomy and is the control. Um, the ability not just to be behind the wheel, uh, uh, literally, but also figuratively. Uh, these are people who, t- who have these jobs and, and are able to, to tr- I mean, they're essentially independent contractors, every, every cabbie. So they can, they can stop driving and go visit family o- overseas if they want. Um, they, could, they, they set their own hours at, 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 as, much as, they, as much as they can. Um, and they have, they have a, and I mean this with, with affection, they have this attitude of control too. You know, they, they are, they, they, they know more than you do about just about everything, especially about the city, about the city that they're in. And, uh, they're, uh, uh, opinionated and, 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 and sometimes, um, brash and, and, uh, yes, they, they are, they are certainly, um, they're certainly the lords of that front seat. And you describe taxis as borders, which I just found so interesting. Uh, uh, unpack that that for us. Why is a taxi like a border? So many ways. I th- think about the interfaces that exist in a cab, right? So you, you have you have the the divide between um, you know a working class and every other kind of class, right? There's no other place where uh, a, a working class and a worker uh, comes into comes into that close and lengthy proximity with every other kind of person, right? Whether whether you're whether you're 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 poor or rich, you'll find yourself in the backseat of a cab at some point. So there's that. There's obviously uh, the, there's the interface there between uh, uh, white space and and brown space, uh, uh, um, brown and black space. Typically, uh, drivers are uh, are people of color, and, and and so this is this is a this is a place where where where. You know, the people of di- of different uh, ethnicities and 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 uh, and experiences meet. Um, this is where this is where uh, uh, the newcomer is is interfaced with the, the the person who's been here for a long time, like myself, um, or been here forever, like myself. And so there's there's so there's so many ways that 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 tiny little space and you know encased in in metal and glass. There's so many different borders that are there. And there's an interesting border too, and this is what I thought about, wrote about in the beginning of the book about how there's there's between story and silence that there's this interface between story and silence because typically what we do uh, uh, to our discredit, but I do it also, is you get into the back seat of a cab, you you, you maybe you you blurt out your destination, maybe you exchange pleasantries, and then you disappear into the glow of your phone, and 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 the the ride is is silent. And and the border I really wanted to cross in, in this book was, you know, on the other side of that wall of silence are these incredible uh, uh, life experiences, these incredible backstories of the men and women that drive us around. Now they don't always want to talk about it. I mean, this is not this. I, I, the last thing I would want is 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 for everyone to read my book to jump in the backseat of a cab and pester their driver for their <laughs> life stories. <laughs> in fact, they hate that. <laughs> um, that's but. If they're willing to talk, and a lot of them are, as many of us ex- have experienced in the backseat of cabs, you know, there's, there's only two kinds of drivers: those that don't want to talk, and those who won't stop talking. And um, I, I was I was very fortunate to be in the presence of the latter 
for the, for the, for the purpose of this book to cross over that border from, from kind of, you know, cell phone silence in the back to, uh, uh, to, to learning uh, of the lives of the people in the front. And, and, and so, yeah, what the, what the cab drivers have is this, is, is this, uh, uh, this link to, to, the, to the wider population. And, and, and let's be fair, like, so do a lot of other, so do a lot of other workers in a lot of other industries. You know, the person who gives you your double-double at Tim Hortons uh, uh, also may come from a, a have an incredible backstory and in, interacts on a daily basis with a, with a greater community. But the intimacy between client, like passenger and driver, or, or, or the, between those two, those, those two people is much greater within the cab just because of the physical uh, proximity of it and, 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 the, and the length of time. You know, pick, picking up your coffee from the counter is not the same as spending 45 minutes in the back of a cab, you know, looking, looking, at, looking at your driver's eyes through the rectangle of glass of the mirror. You know, that's an entirely different experience. Thinking about, you know, sort of the conversations we, we have or, or don't have with our taxi drivers. Uh, my husband worked in politics for, for a while and he would always ask uh, the drivers, you know, how did they think, you know, what, how are things going in politics and, and, and what was their, their, their top concern? And he always felt like, well, it maybe wasn't the largest sample size, uh, it was pretty pretty good data. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. There was a there was a, a gentleman I didn't have a chance to write about too much in the in the book, but he was he was a he used to be a poet and kind of a bohemian in Ottawa, and uh, uh, eventually started driving cab in the capital and would drive around uh, politicians and Supreme Court justices and uh, and uh, you know Parliament Hill reporters and journalists, and he knew everything. You know, he he knew when there he knew when there was elections were going to be called before the press did. You know, and he was he was a fountain of information. And and the, the few journalists who knew that talked to Bill, they, they could get some they could get some some quality uh, uh, information uh, from their driver. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. So <laughs> so so all of the the drivers you interviewed, which driver has kind of stuck with you the most? So many have stuck with me for all different reasons, but I think the the driver whose story is 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 so uh, uh, like layered and, and interesting it was um, uh, Mo from uh, uh, from Baghdad, and so uh, uh, Mo used to he was he fought he, he was, he's this big he's this big dude grew up in Baghdad kind of a middle class family um, fought two wars for Saddam Hussein. You know, once first against the Iranians and then against the Americans in the first Gulf War. Um, he was he was an he was an artist. You know, so he had this artistic creative side to him too. He also was an he also and I say this with affection is it was an is an incredible bully without 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 a, without a filter. He has a tendency through through some traumatic experiences during during his time on the battlefield and in training. He's a tendency towards violence. Um, and he's kind of this blowhard guy who now lives in, in Halifax, who I absolutely adore. Who, who, there's, there's so many, there's so many layers to to to, to, to Mo, um, and such an honesty about him too. That's I really find fascinating. And for all the kind of like bombastic uh, uh, blowhard qualities of, of Mo, there's there's beneath it a, a real sensitivity and a real, um, you know, I don't want to speak for 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 him as a psychologist or anything like that, but there's, there's, a, there's a fragility and, and a damage to Mo that is, that I find really, really fascinating. Uh, uh, um, 
people who read the people who've read the book uh, either they find Mo their favorite or least favorite driver, and and I, and I think there's something there's something about the layers to his to his personality and to his 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 history that people find really fascinating and polarizing yeah. and polarizing because I think it's whether you connect with his inside or the outside bravado. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I enjoyed Mo. I I hope one day I can travel to Halifax and and I hop in his cab one day. <laughs> I'm not sure we've had a just transition for taxi drivers in the way we talk about a just transition for energy workers, for example, as you know, climate change and our response to it, you know, has um, negative impacts on that industry and I was wondering if you had kind of thought about because because you talk about you know some really important points in terms of the physical and the mental toll um, of the work and the violence and um, what what might a just transition have looked like for for taxi drivers when when kind of uber swept into town and Lyft and all the yeah. app-based companies all the drivers wanted was was an actual level playing field in fairness when when those when those companies came into play. And now there's lots of governments that are saying that that provincial and municipal governments are saying, oh, we're we're leveling that playing field. And 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 uh, I think in a lot of places it's 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 too little, too late. Uh, um, but it the, the, those people who kind of are are are, are supportive of the of the kind of Uber uh, camp will say, well, this is just uh, competition, and, and the, the drivers can't handle the competition. And that's not the case. That's not what we're talking about at all. It's it's, it's uh, uh, the the drivers in, in in the cities where they work have for years you know followed the rules that this that this that their individual cities and authorities have imposed upon them as far as how many licenses are given out, for example, or how licenses are traded, and how much training you need, and how much what kind of insurance you need, all these sorts of things. And then and then uh, the the app based services come into play and don't have to follow any of those rules. And so it's not about uh, 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 competition. It's about unfa unfair advantage, and that unfair advantage comes from the government. You know, it comes from municipal. It comes from city hall. It comes from the from the province in, in Quebec, for example. And so, if everyone, if, if if Uber came in and were treated across the board like any other ride for hire company, then then there there would be less of a problem there. And, and but the big problem too within in a lot of cities is that you know your taxi license uh, uh, you know they, they call it a medallion in New York they call it uh, permits other places but that that was a marketable uh, document that you could that that raised in value uh, uh, it had a market value that when 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 drivers were issued that that uh, permit sometimes they paid thousands and thousands of dollars for it. But it would raise in value, so at the end of your driving career, you would sell it, and that would be your retirement plan. <laughs> in Toronto, they were told that that's the words of the they said, here is your retirement plan. I say, and and now that those permits in a lot of places are now rendered worthless, and and that's not the pro that's not the fault of the drivers. That's not the fault of competition. That's a fault of of, of regulation, and that's simply not fair. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is this is not about uh, uh, the cab industry whining that they're being out out outplayed by a, by a new competitor by the new kind of the new company on the block it's that it's that all the it's that it's un, it's an unfair competition 
The rules yeah. are different. The rules are definitely different. And, and it is a regulated industry, as, as you say. So it's not like you're, you're, you're not even bumping up against the invisible hand. You're bumping up against a very <laughs> hand. visible right. government hand. The man, the hand of the yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's funny though you talk you talk about you talk about Uber and and as, as you can probably guess you know the, every time I sat down with a, with a with a cab driver uh, uh, that was one of the first things they wanted to talk about um, and 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 that's what they assumed that I wanted to talk about too uh, uh, um, that we were going to have this this long debate about Uber which is fine um, but in a way you know that wasn't that wasn't the the the, the focus of, of my interest right like you know I was much I I, I much I, I cared much less about driving cab. Then I cared about the drivers, and 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 so I, I, oftentimes I'd have to, uh, um, you know, kind of sit back with my recorder and 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 listen to a uh, a long, you know, clearly well rehearsed uh, uh, diatribe against the the evils of, of of Uber and and of City Hall before I can get to the questions of like, okay, well, what were you like as a kid? You know what I mean? Like, that, that, those good, <laughs> I, we had to get we had to get past that that kind of uh, that kind of uh, talk before I can get into the the meat of who they were. It was the elephant in the taxi. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I wanted to get you to tell the story about Ikwe, because not oh, all yes. taxi driving is done for profit. Right. Yes. And Ikwe was unique because they're not, in a sense, they're not cab, well, they're not, they're not taxi drivers, they're a response to it. So in, in, in Winnipeg, for many years, uh, 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 women in Winnipeg, especially Indigenous women, were treated horribly uh, often by by Winnipeg's cab drivers. Um, uh, everything from suggestive sexual comments to all to, to full out uh, uh, violence, and um, and eventually uh, they had enough. And there was a, a service was started, uh, kind of a essentially it was it was a non. I mean, it still is. It was like a, this nonprofit service. That was based on on Facebook, uh, called Ikwe, and all it all it was very simple. All it did was it it, it, um, it paired uh, women who had a car and some time to volunteer with with women who needed a ride somewhere. So it's it's a ride service for free for women only in Winnipeg. Now, uh, uh, if you're if you're a passenger on on an Ikwe ride, you're expected to give a donation uh, to the driver. Um, and the, those donations are, are not kind of regular. There's some suggested amounts, and they're 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 they're, they're kind of akin to cab uh, regular taxi fare. Um, but what it does for what it what it's done for women of Winnipeg is to give them an option. And, and they've heard so many horror stories about driving in cabs that here they can they, they can feel safe in the back seat uh, with, with with a woman behind the wheel. And what was so interesting about this service is that is the community that it created. You know, you had you had hundreds of you had you had uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of, of, of women sign up to be to be uh, clients, and you and you had dozens of women sign up to be volunteers, and and they created these little communities and friendships, and they would you know the, the drivers would sit around at this one Tim Hortons in Winnipeg and 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 talk all night while they're waiting for for a for a ride request to pop up on the on the, on the Facebook page. Um, it was a it, it, it created this really a uh, uh, lovely. Uh, Connections between between women in the, in the community of Winnipeg, um, and it was it was uh, it was so heart it was kind of really heartwarming to see what it what they what they had created there. 
Now, of course, the cab the cabin issue in Winnipeg is less finds it less heartwarming and can be and and, and are you know they they certainly oppose this. They 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 feel that they've been unfairly uh, uh, branded as, as as racist and and as and as violent and um and to be fair, they've done themselves no favors in their response to it. They've 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 uh, a lot of the times they've responded to accusations of aggression with more aggression. Um, and none of them wanted to talk to me. Uh, uh, none of the cab industry in Winnipeg wanted to talk to me once they heard I was talking to Ikwe. Um, but man, I'll tell you, I spent, I had so much, I, I had tried so much joy by spending time with 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 the, with the women of Ikwe. Like they again, wonderful stories of, of these women who had been. A lot of them had been through a lot, and uh, uh, were there to help their help their community and, and to, to kind of this, to build this connection between women in their city. It was it's really quite beautiful. Yeah, I was really quite struck by it. And, you know, I, I thought, I bet Ikwe outlives the for-profit taxi industry. But then I read your postscript about how the pandemic mm. has, has hurt the service. And I, I was so sad. <laughs> yes, not as sad as they were, right? Because not, not only did they lose this sort of... Um, well, you know, they started the the founders of Ikwe started it to, to, to help women, right? It was it was to serve their serve their fellow uh, women of Winnipeg, um, and because of the pandemic, uh, very you know fewer fewer volunteers wanted to drive. There are fewer places to drive to. They stopped they stopped driving at night because they felt they were bringing people to to, to parties and gatherings that were breaking the social gathering rules, and they didn't want to be part of the problem. But at the same time, if they stopped driving at night, then all those all those uh, issues that that women faced at night on the streets would would they didn't have an option to go with Ikwe. So it was it really kind of tore up this this kind of beautiful uh, little society that was created. Um, I just spoke to Christine of Ikwe yesterday, and um, things are getting a little bit better. You know, as as we're nearing the end of of, of, of the pandemic, one hopes, or, or at least we're seeing an end to it. Um, she hopes that, that that the volunteers will come back, the drivers will come back, and there'll be this will kind of begin begin again. But she's worried that that, that many of the volunteers that that left Ikwe will will have left for good. Yeah, it's it's a hard one to predict, right? Because yeah. on the one hand, probably the reason or the the rationale for starting the service in the first place. Um, sadly probably still holds but yes. on the other hand um what made it sustainable and allowed it to thrive was community and mm -hmm. it's very hard to rebuild community bonds once they've been fractured no that's true i can only hope i mean talking to the women of ikwe you know they got so much from that uh service from, from from Ikwe itself and not just this uh, uh you know things you know the, the good feeling of doing something uh charitable for your community um but you know I talked to one woman named named Sherry who talks about how she was painfully shy before starting to drive for Ikwe and Ikwe gave her this confidence to speak to strangers and she's become she's she's a completely different person after her time with Ikwe I talked to another woman who said who spends all of her time she, she, she's she works with kids during the day and she spends all her time with children and Ikwe offers her this opportunity to, to, to socialize with, with other adults, you know, it's something that she doesn't get in, in her day-to-day -day life. Um, 
it helps it helped some women uh, get in touch with their indigenous uh, communities and their indigenous culture and background. Um, so there's all these kind of layers of of benefits that that the women, both the drivers and the and the passengers, get from that service. And um, hopefully, all, hopefully those benefits are so great that the, that the women will flock back to the service once they can. Um, it would be very sad if they did. Yes, well, hopefully a lot of things come back once yes, yes, of uh, what you know, social things, right? Um, yeah. That have been discouraged as unsafe. Hopefully, they, they they come back. When you reflect kind of on all the stories and the experience uh, of interviewing uh, all of these drivers, uh, as you say, mostly men, but 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 some women too. What what's the image of Canada that 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 you walk away with, and and did your own image of Canada as a country um, get iterated through this process? Oh, what another, another great question. But before, before I answer that, I want to say that, you know, I've never, this is my fifth book, and I've never felt more of a conduit to stories than, you know, than the, than the writer of them. You know what I mean? Like these people's stories are so remarkable. And um, I was I was so grateful for them sharing them with me. And, and, and you know, this is really, you know, I, I was less I was less the storyteller than the, than the than the than the just the one who passes on those stories to the reader and it was such a it was such a thrill. Um, as far as as Canada, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's another great question. You know, it was, sometimes for me, it, it's it, it's it's I wonder if we as 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 a society need to be more curious about those who are around us. Um, to to maybe lift our eyes up from those phones a little more and, and, and just acknowledge that the that the people we the, the strangers around us have these in, these incredible experiences these incredible life life histories um, the, these people that we see just as a driver or just as our our barista or just as the uh, uh, the person bagging our groceries at the store. Um, you know, it's it's such a cliche, and I and I, but they, you know, they contain multitudes, right? I mean, the the the, the layers of experience that we're surrounded by, um, the things that they know that we don't know. You know, everyone, people around us know things we don't know that we should know. Um, you know, Canada has been good uh, uh, for 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 uh, obviously most of my. Uh, uh, Drivers came from somewhere else, and most of my drivers will, would would say that Canada has been good to them, um, uh, and they're 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 certainly happy to be here. It's a safe place. It's a place of opportunity that 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 opportunities that perhaps do not exist uh, uh, where they where, where they where they were born. Um, but also, it, this is not we can't get smug about that. I mean, I mean, all, all these drivers face racism, they face violence. Uh, uh, they face these challenges from uh, 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 you know, Uber and, and these things that like we talked about already. Um, and so I think what 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 one of the things is that you know like, I, I, I'm less smug about about uh, uh, the, our glorious nation uh, than than I was before I started this. And it also made me look at you know you look outside of our borders in a different way. And, and um, you know I, I, I knew I, I knew nothing about. The, the the Sierra Leone civil war. I knew very little about what it meant to live in the Soviet Union in, during the Cold War. I, I I these are these are all kinds of stories 
that uh, I may have read a, a paragraph or two about in my in my social studies book in junior high, but uh, uh, never never sat next to someone who lived through these things. And I think as Canadians, we we just have to acknowledge the the stories that surround us. Marcello, thank you so much for sitting down with me and having this conversation. And thank you so much for taking the time to write such a beautiful book, sharing the lives that are so close to us that uh, we may never have opened the book on without you. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.